Hello, everybody. Everybody, please take your seats. Um, thank you so much for coming. Uh, I'm Barbara Slavin. I'm the acting director of the Future of Iran Initiative here at the Atlantic Council. And this is an event that we've been planning for a very long time. So I'm absolutely thrilled uh, that, that we are, we're, we're going to be able to, to pull it off. Um, I think all of you know that the US and Iran have had a rather up and down relationship uh, over the years, uh, to put it uh, mildly. Um, and in preparation for this event, I just decided to reread a wonderful book uh, by the late Professor Jim Bill called The Eagle and the Lion. I highly recommend it to anyone who has not had a chance to read it. Uh, now, Professor Bill is very, very critical of American policy toward Iran in uh, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Um, but he has this one line, which I thought is worth repeating. He says that there was an exception to all the mistakes the United States made in Iran in the 60s and 70s, the Peace Corps which of course, as you know, was founded by the John F. Kennedy administration. He said the Peace Corps had a strong positive impact in Iran since it was targeted at the lower and middle classes. He notes that nearly 2,000 Americans served in Iran with the Peace Corps before the revolution. He said they were, quote, the antithesis of the ugly American and gained the United States some badly needed credibility, unquote. So we are very fortunate to have here on the podium and in the audience many former U.S. Peace Corps volunteers in Iran who made real contributions to Iranian society and in the process developed an abiding love and affection for Iran. And in addition, we have two Iranian Americans who've spent much of their lives trying to explain Iran to Americans, which is not always easy. So we look forward very much to their comments and, and to your questions. Um, first now, I'm going to introduce uh, Tom Huff. It was his idea to have this program. I'm very grateful to him. He's Senior Program Manager for Facilities Planning and Programming at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He served in the Peace Corps in Iran from 1967 to 71, and among the many things he did there was planning and designing Ferdowsi University in Mashhad and Mazandaran University uh, on the Caspian. Uh, he's also a member of the board and advocacy committee of the Peace Corps Iran Association, and I'm proud to say also a member of the Atlantic Council. So I'm going to turn this over to Tom Huff, who will, show, who will say a few words, introduce our other speakers, and show us a short video. Thank you. Thanks, Barbara. This is uh, uh, the culmination of uh, six or seven months of uh, us talking about uh, what the so significance of this particular time. And I just think about today being significant because it's the end of uh, the National Running Association's uh, annual event, uh, which we have become quite aware of, those of us who are still active in the Peace Corps. It's the end of the National Peace Corps Association's uh, four-day event that was held here in Washington this year. Um, I think of it just thinking back sort of chronologically about things. It's 20 months after the signing and approval of the JCPOA. For many of us who were in Iran, it's probably 40, 40 years since we were there. So we're not talking about the Peace Corps here in the sense of, you know, looking backward, but really thinking about the fact that almost 2,000 of us are here in America, back in our communities, having uh, taken to heart uh, something that you'll see 
repeated here by John Kennedy himself, to bring, America, bring other countries home to America, in this case to bring Iran home to America, it has had a very deep influence on, I think, every single person I know who was in the Peace Corps felt it was a life-changing event. And we feel we need, it's our obligation to share a kind of appreciation of Iran and its, its complex culture uh, with all of our fellow citizens and our communities. So with, without further ado, after we screen a short video that we put together about that, um, I just wanted to introduce our other speakers. Uh, John Limbert, uh, he's a professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the Naval Academy. Um, he spent 34 years in the Foreign Service, uh, several of which were as ambassador in Mauritania and uh, senior Foreign Service officer in many parts of uh, North Africa and the Middle East. Um, and author of several books, including uh, Negotiations uh, Between Iran and, and the U.S. is one of, one of his uh, many books that I think probably still claims to be somewhat fluent in Farsi. My, mine has faded greatly. Um, Farzane Milani will speak next. She's a professor of Persian literature and studies at the, in the University of Virginia and chair of the Department in Near Eastern and South Asian Languages. She's published hundreds of articles. You can find her in many places on TED Talks, which I highly recommend you do. Um, and she's been the recipient of a number of distinguished awards for teaching and research in the literature uh, of Iran. Uh, Tom Ricks uh, will be next. Um, he's uh, not to be confused with another Tom Ricks, who if you look up Tom Ricks, on, <laughs> you will find another one. Uh, and he made sure that we put M on, on his name in our program. So uh, if you're looking up Tom Ricks, make sure you know about the M. Um, he's uh, spent 40 years teaching and researching um, on uh, subjects having to do with Iran, and particularly uh, with uh, now working on a book about um, the turn of the century, uh, folks in Iran and the, the Tabrizi revolutionaries, uh, which I believe, I'm not sure when that's coming out, but uh, he's, he's working on that right now. Um, last but not least is Trita Parsi, who many of you who, who uh, see, see things here at the Atlantic Council know. Uh, he's the president of NIAC. He's on the board, the advisory board of, of the uh, Future Iran Initiative here. Um, the author of several books, um, and uh, has taught both at Hopkins and Georgetown, uh, George Washington University. And his book, which I think is very topical, is coming out in uh, early next year called Losing an Enemy, Obama and the Triumph of Diplomacy. So with that, we'll screen the film. temporary pilot basis. I'm also sending to Congress a message opposing authorization of a permanent peace call. This call will be a pool of trained men and women that overseas by the United States government or to private institutions and organizations to help foreign countries meet their urgent needs to skilled manpower. It is our hope to have between 500 to 1,000 people in the field by the end of this year. Hi, I'm Jackie Spurlock, President of Peace Corps Iran Association. 
I served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Iran from 1974 to 1976. Living and working among the Iranian people and experiencing their rich cultural heritage changed my life forever. I believe that Peace Corps volunteers have a unique perspective and a responsibility to share that with their fellow Americans. In 2011, a group of returned Iran Peace Corps volunteers presented a reunion and conference in Portland, Oregon. That event was a great success and brought 300 of us together for the first time to reconnect and explore how Americans and Iranians could get to know and appreciate each other and how returned Peace Corps volunteers could help. The Peace Corps Iran Association is a national organization representing people who served in the Peace Corps in Iran. We created PCIA in 2012 to promote the ideals of the Peace Corps by helping Americans understand Iranians better. It is time for Americans to see Iran with fresh eyes. My name is John Salamak, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Iran uh, from 1965 to 67 in a small city outside of, well, quite a bit outside of Mashhad, in the northeast corner of Iran. I was an English teacher there. I was an English teacher in the States before I went there. Two years working with uh, English Iranian English teachers who uh, I was worried that we were going to be used to replace those teachers and put them out of jobs. So instead of doing that, we ran a night school for English teachers and to improve their English language skills and thereby help them uh, in their classroom, uh, in their daily classroom lessons, etc. Uh, I would say that joining the Peace Corps was the watershed decision of my life. Uh, my life has never been the same since. It opened up the world to me. It, uh, it made me feel like a citizen of the world rather than just an American. And for that, I will be forever grateful to the Peace Corps for giving me that opportunity. I didn't come with a family that would have been able to uh, to give me the opportunity as an international travel or experiences abroad. So once again, I just say thank you, Peace We want to go back. <laughs> Is this on? We on? Hello, hello. I don't think it's on. Yeah. Hello. Okay. Yes, it's live. It'll
That was a lovely film, and uh, I think I especially appreciate the fact that there were some scenes from Iran today in it, uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to just uh, uh, from the past. Uh, John, um, I don't know that you need an introduction to this crowd. Uh, <laughs> I should also say that John is also a member of the advise, my advisory board for, for the uh, Future of Iran Initiative. So, okay, thank let's you. Let's hear from you. You can speak, use this? Uh, yeah, I, I would like to okay, speak. Go ahead. speak from here, please. Thank, well, thank you, Barbara and uh, uh, Tom. And it's, it's great to see so many, good uh, uh, so many good friends here. And thank you for coming out on this uh, beautiful fall day. Uh, thinking about the session, I said, well, maybe they should be called, in a rather pessimistic manner, the ties that blind. <laughs> uh, because you know, looking at the long interaction between our two people, uh, there often, unfortunately, there was an inability to see or a refusal to see um, a reality that lay behind this facade of harmony and stability that we had. I mean, in those days, in the 60s, uh, when I first went to Iran, and then later in the 70s, when I was living there, if one did not look too carefully and very few of us were ever encouraged to look very carefully, uh, everything looked pretty good. And it's understandable how, for example, President Carter in late 1977 uh, could call Iran under the leadership of the Shah an island of stability in a turbulent region, which he famously did. <laughs> um, I would note the exception, the remarkable exception of our good friend and colleague uh, the late James Bill, whom Barbara mentioned. I'm really glad that she did. Uh, he was professor at Texas, University of Texas, and at William and & Mary. And with his language skills, with his intellectual discipline, with his curiosity, um, he probed below the surface of events. And he used to talk to Peace Corps volunteers in Iran um, and encourage us to see a reality other than the cheery official statements that came from both sides. And his efforts, I should say, earned him very little credit, either from Iranian or American officials. Uh, in our training for Iran back in 1964, uh, politics were deliberately avoided. And any mention would have earned the wrath of this. We had this fearsome Persian language director. And you did not want to incur his wrath by discussing politics. But we should have heard alarm bells, however, when, despite the prohibition, one of our Persian instructors suggested that when we reached Iran, we should use our access to assassinate the Shah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> now, when I arrived in Iran in September of 1964, and a few weeks later, I found myself in Sanandaj, the uh, capital of Iranian Kurdistan, preparing for the beginning of the school year. At that time, Iran was in the middle of a historic battle over something called the New Status of Forces Law, or the SOFA, right. that would grant judicial immunity to American military advisors and their families. And the debate was to culminate in a bitter attack on the new law from Ayatollah Khomeini on the 26th of October, 1964 and his subsequent exile um, on the 4th of November, 1964, <laughs> a date that would come back to haunt us all 13 years later. 
At that time, what did I know about these incredibly important events? The answer is nothing, nothing. They were not reported in the news, and my Iranian friends were certainly not going to say anything about it, certainly not in front of me were they going to say anything about it. How many of my Peace Corps colleagues uh, knew about them? I, I haven't polled them, but I expect my, my own ignorance was, was not unique. Uh, I still ask myself, how could I have missed all this? Because, I mean, the effects of this were huge. Uh, by this gift from the Americans, who claimed that the new law was simply a technical fix to an existing agreement, Ayatollah Khomeini became no longer just a fringe figure on the religious right who was attacking, uh, speaking against women voting and speaking against co-education. He was now speaking of national pride. And his attacks resonated among many Iranians whose version of history was one of humiliation. In other words, by insisting on imposing this change, we, the Americans, were give, we gave Khomeini his start <laughs> as a hero of Iranian nationalism. In his speeches, for example, he evoked the powerful word capitulation, or the loss of sovereignty, recalling Iran's great national degradation at Turkmanchai in 1829. Now, every Iranian, including many who opposed Khomeini's message of reaction, the so-called Ahunbazi that he uh, offered, uh, knew exactly what he meant. But how many Americans understood the reference? I'm sure here you all understand it. But most, in most audiences that I speak to, uh, most people think that Turkmenchai is something that you get at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> Now, am I being too harsh? Maybe I, I'm, I'm, you know, you could say, well, you're being too harsh on yourself and your colleagues. But if we miss the big one, or if I miss the big one in 1964, what, what did we actually see? Did, did we see any more than most of the American officials, with the exception of Dick Arndt, who's here today, um, who, ne who almost never went beyond the elite circles of Tehran, um, of Tehran. I think we did see things. I think what we saw was something that belied the official propaganda. We saw lots of insincere and half-hearted adulation of the Shah. It wasn't hard, though, to see a different reality behind the facade of statues, uniforms, military displays, ceremonies, parades, that behind this simmered a pot of either active dislike, distaste, or perhaps more damaging, indifference. To most of those that I knew in, in Sanandaj at the time and later in places like Burujerd, Iraq, Iraq, Hamadan, Shiraz, and they were neither religious ideologues nor were they Marxists. The Shah and his system was something to be tolerated at best. My friends would participate in the Shah's birthday celebrations on the 4th of Aban and other ceremonies because they had to. 
their lack of enthusiasm. They made no effort to hide. To hide. My favorite was when they celebrated women's, the, the unveiling day on the 17th, um, uh, 17th of day, and when they did this in Yazd, the speaker said, all, all praise to the father of the Shah who has liberated us from the veil, and the audience all clapped, and the women, there, were, there was not an unveiled woman in <laughs> the audience. In the end, when the final battles came in 1978 and 1979, I think it was this indifference and this unfocused resentment that we had seen that became fatal to the monarchy. Uh, the indifference uh, came from those, coming from these apparent beneficiaries of the system. People who benefited from the Shah's system were indifferent. And this, I think, in the, in the end, was more damaging uh, to the Shah than the open enmity of Khomeini and his allies. To those of us who dealt with teachers and other professionals, um, dealt with teachers and other professionals, it really came as no surprise that our friends joined the street party that happened after the Shah left the country in January of 1979. And it certainly came no, came no surprise that they marched and shouted for an Islamic Republic that in the end would reject them and their values. Thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Do you want to use the podium? Why don't you sit here for now until, until President is done. Yeah, thank you. Good afternoon. It's such an honor, such a privilege to be here uh, in the company of such luminaries and uh, in the presence of such a distinguished audience. Um, to be honest with you, I feel like a fish out of water. Um, I'm not a politician. Uh, my field is literature. And ironically enough, it's the area that has been completely neglected by our politicians and political scientists inside and outside the country. So today, with your permission, I would like to take the 10, 15 minutes I have to talk about the benefits of doing that and the perils of not listening to the voice of our literary figures. My field is Iranian women writers, so I will focus on that, although I believe what I say uh, can be extended to Iranian literature in general. So let me begin with an assertion I've believed in for at least the last 10, 15 years. I don't believe Iran has witnessed only two revolutions in the last 100 years, the Constitutional Revolution of 1905-1911, the Islamic Revolution of nine, uh, 1979. I think there has been another revolution within those two revolutions, in fact, preceding it. It's a nonviolent revolution. It's a revolution that does not intend to replace one ruler with another, but it tries to change 
social reality, gender dynamics, the structure of power in every single home across the country, in millions of bedrooms and kitchens. We seldom hear about this revolution, either inside or outside the country. And yet, this is a revolution that has shaken the very foundation of the Iranian society. Yes, it has been more nonviolent. It has not shed a drop of blood, but it has changed gender relations, the very definition of masculinity and femininity. It has changed the country in a way that if you would allow me to say, the other two revolutions have not been able to. So I'm a storyteller, and I want to share a story with you. On March 20th, 2011, I had the great honor to call Simin Behbahani, a woman I loved like a mother. She was Iran's iconic poet. She was lovingly nicknamed the lioness of Iran. She had been a voice of wisdom and dissent before and after the revolution. I had great news for her. I was to tell her that within a few hours, President Obama was going to read a few lines of her poems and was going to talk about her and end her, uh, his uh, New Year's uh, message to the Iranian people to be broadcast globally with her. So let me just share uh, part of what President Obama said on that day. On this day, a celebration that serves as a bridge from the past to the future, I would like to close with a quote from the poet Simin Behbahani, a woman who has been banned from traveling beyond Iran, even though her words have moved the world, the world. And then the president read a few lines of a poem that Professor Arndt supported with an award, the Lewis Roth Award, a book of translation. Old I may be, but given the chance, I will learn. I will begin a second youth alongside my progeny. I will recite the hadith of love of country with such fervor as to make each word bear life. I love poetry. I love reading poetry. But I have to confess, President Obama did a much better job at reading these lines. <laughs> I can tell you, many Iranians had tears in their eyes. 
I vividly recall my conversation with this amazing woman. So she listened to me and almost incredulous. She asked, Farzanejun, really? At the time, she was 83 years old. She was virtually under country arrest. Her passport had been confiscated. And then she said, this is the best New Year gift I've ever received in my life. And after a pregnant, pregnant pause and silence, she added, this means a lot more to me than a Nobel Prize. Simin Behbohani had been nominated twice for the Nobel Prize. Unfortunately, she didn't get it, but she was the recipient of numerous international awards, um, literary awards, human rights awards. But President Obama's listening ears, his reference to the word of this woman, his message that I've listened and I've heard you meant more to her than anything else. All the accolades she had received then. And I believe spoken words and heard words, written words and read words, all the foreclam of diplomacy. Effective diplomacy, my friends, is not a talk show. Mm. It demands <laughs> listening. It demands understanding. It demands connecting. And yet for decades, before and after the revolution, the American media and policymakers have paid more attention to one group of Iranians the rulers rather than the ruled, men rather than women, politicians focusing on conflicts rather than interested in the peaceful resolution of conflicts. The eye of our cameras in the West has been zoomed for the most part on the, this group of people. The ears of our cameras, of our microphones, have often been directed in their direction. And the American publishing industry has veiled this beautiful voice, this moderating, modernizing voice with its own unfortunate way by being more and more interested in blockbusters rather than works of translation. No wonder then, President Obama's comment on the significance of Behbahani's poetry and her power to move the world had such an impact on this beloved Iranian poet whom we have unfortunately lost. The president listening ear was a precious gift 
it was a bridge builder. Literature in Iran has always been and continues to be relevant to Iranian politics. It has depicted a nation in the process of redefining itself in the modern era. It has offered a multi-layered portrayal of Iran from the street level up. The kind of history you will not find in history books. The kind of history that is vital in any understanding of Iran. So let me give you another example, this time of the perils of not listening to this voice, the voice of Iranian women writers. And that will fit perfectly with my dear, dear friend, Ambassador Lambert. And I want to tell you, you didn't listen to the voices. You also needed to listen True. because it was there. <laughs> At a time in the 1960s, when our political leaders believed themselves to be invincible, when they were at the height of their powers, when exceptionally few politicians inside or outside the country, Iranians or Westerners, foresaw a change of regime, let alone a revolution, an Iranian female poet predicted the revolution with uncanny clarity. And she did so not from the safe distance of diaspora. She did it from inside the country. Mm. And the book was published inside Iran because no one took it seriously. There was censorship, but this poem Predicting a revolution was not censored. The poem is titled, I Feel Sorry for the Garden. The garden being the beautiful country of my birth. So let me just read a few lines of it. All day long, the sound of blasts and explosions can be heard. Instead of flowers, Instead of flowers, our neighbors plant mortars and machine guns in their garden. They store gunpowder in their covered pools. The kids in our neighborhood, the little kids in our neighborhood, fill their backpacks with bombs. Although, Farrakhzad predicted death and destruction, and the poem is a very long poem. She did not stop there. She pleaded to make the withering sick garden and to take it to a hospital. She was convinced violence and bloodshed is not the cure, that violence is not the solution. So she wrote in that very same poem, I know 
the garden can be taken to a hospital. I know it. I know it. I know it. She repeated three times. I often wonder, what would have happened if our politicians and political scientists inside and outside the country had paid attention to such prescient observations? I ask myself whether Iranians' history might have taken a different course if, if these early dem demands of the Iranian people's desire for democracy, their claim on human rights and human dignity was taken seriously I list and listened to. I wonder what would have happened if our politicians had offered their listening ears to this great-great-granddaughter of Shahrzad, the storyteller. I'm sure you remember, she too taught the king, Shahryar, her husband, the serial killer, to listen. For centuries, we've talked about the power of Shahrzad to talk, to tell stories. It's time we start praising the Shahriyar for listening to the words of Shahrzad. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Can you sit here or? I'll go up there. Okay. You, can, you can sit there if you prefer. Thank you for that wonderful speech, Professor Milani. Um, it's been 50 years since I've been in Iran, and I'm speaking from those 50 years. Uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I went in 1964 in April. This was a month after Ayatollah Khomeini was given a one-way exit out of Tehran, and it was sent to, Tabriz, uh, to Istanbul, and then eventually ended up in uh, Najaf, Iraq. There are three people I want to talk about, however, wh whom I came in contact with within the first six months of my being a Peace Corps volunteer. And from that, draw a couple conclusions about U.S.-Iran relations uh, that will embellish some of the uh, comments that have already been made. The first uh, person I'd like to introduce you to is a fellow by the name of Mossadegh, oh, not the Prime Minister, Dr. Mossadegh, I never met him. I'm not that old. I did meet, however, a storekeeper who simply sold groceries at the entrance of the carpet bazaar in the city of Mashhad. When it was still a bazaar around the, the, the shrine of Imam Reza and was the very heart of Mashhad. This man was most remarkable, and I met him in the very first day I arrived in Mashhad. In the tradition of Peace Corps, we were overlapping the previous group, Group 1. We were Group 3. In fact, they rushed us to Iran because Group 2 was only seven people. And if Group 1 of 42 were to leave and the 29 of us were to arrive later, there would be more staff members in 
Iran, then Peace Corps volunteers. And Schreiber didn't like that. So he ordered our program to be escalated. And uh, we arrived within uh, one week of the previous group leaving. That's the Iran One group. And we all inherited in the cities where we ended up, I was in Mashhad, the work and the, the, work, uh, the, uh, the people that had been introduced already uh, to Peace Corps as well as the other Peace Corps volunteers. And in my case, I was introduced to Mossadegh by my predecessor, an, an American who was a Peace Corps uh, working in the um, land reform activities, uh, land education. I was to teach English as a second language. Uh, so I was impressed by this man for many reasons. He wasn't just a simple storekeeper. I began to sit in his shop because I saw that he was, and my predecessor, Stephen, told me, please, if you have questions, he'll, Mozadek will give you all the answers. And I found out this is absolutely true. So I sat in his shop uh, as much as I could, and having little to do initially because we were approaching the summer months and Iranian schools were closing, so I had some time on my hands. I began to notice that he spent some time working when he wasn't selling eggs and selling bread and hawa and cheese. He was writing on a piece of paper over by his, uh, his cash register. And I asked him finally out of curiosity, he said, what are you doing there? He said, I'm translating Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain <laughs> from English to Persian. I said, you are what? <laughs> if you measure the thickness of that book, you would understand he's been doing it a long time. Oh, he said, I've done other translations. And he spoke beautiful English too, by the way. Although I was speaking with him in Persian at the time. He said, though my Persian wasn't that good at the beginning, so we lapsed into English. I said, what other authors have you translated? He said, uh, Mark Twain, uh, uh, J.D. Schlesinger, Schlesinger? Um, and what other English authors? Oh, Thomas Hardy. And I love Dickens. I was talking to a simple, I thought, a simple grocer. I was being introduced to an aspect in Iran that became very much, very apparent to many of us not too long after I stay. That this is a culture and people that have enormous depth. The taproot of an oak tree can only begin to match it. We began to find that Iranians had multiple interests, although they were philosophers or maybe they were also selling carpets. You can sit down and have a theological discussion that's quite intense for several hours. Um, and reciting poetry was one of their favorite activities. Uh, not just the poets, the intellectuals, because we, we made comrades with teachers as well. We were teachers ourselves. So our coworker, who we were not supposed to replace, um, and who we didn't replace, and we did the very same thing as said in the film. We were actually setting up night schools rather than going into classrooms. That was begun with the Iran 3 group in 1964. But Mossadegh began to tell me about something that was about to happen, and that was Muharram was uh, just around the corner. And we were given certain uh, edicts from the, is the best way to put it, from the embassy to don't turn, turn on loud music. Uh, you'll expect the movie theaters to be closed. Don't go into the streets, for God's sakes, because you have these American faces and you might be harmed. Well, I had to go in from the city, whether I listened to that dictate. And sooner or later, we volunteers soon, soon learned 
it's best not to listen to the embassy. We should listen to our Iranian colleagues. <laughs> so I asked Mossadegh, is it safe for me to come and visit you during Muharram and during Ashura, the 10th day, when there will be a procession down to the, uh, the very famous shrine of the Imam Reza? He said, oh, of course, no problem. We'll be quiet. We're generally in protest in that day, but please come. And so I did with my bicycle. As I came around a corner of the nursing school, which was on my way into downtown Meshed, I ran right into this amazing procession. 50 men across, 100 deep, dressed in black, together beating their backs and their chests, saying, Ya Allah, uh, with big black banners. I was stunned. I took my bicycle, sat over by the tree, and watched them go by. They could care less who I was. I was really amazed at what I was witnessing, so I followed them at a distance. I wasn't supposed to do that either. Down to the bazaar, and I found Mosaddegh, and he said, oh, how are you doing today, Tom? He said, I was amazed, and I told him what I saw. Oh, he said, you should have been here last year when the notable general, well-trained by the American army, by the name of General Membashian, who ran the tank corps outside of uh, Mashhad, decided to bring his tanks down in the middle of, of Muharram, no radios, right? with his full band, regimental band, playing, going seven times around the haram to put the bayonet up the nose of the religious. I said, is that all that happened? Oh, he said, that was an anniversary of what happened the year before when Khomeini had uh, started the uprising of the people in 1963 when he was arrested. In 1963, he waited for the people to come out of the mosque. He set up a line of machine guns, and he began to machine gun people because Ayatollah Milani, maybe no relative, was the one who was speaking against capitulations, against the SOFA agreement. And because of that speech, Membashian lined up his soldiers across the street, and as no one could get, a, get out without being hit by the machine gun, he stopped when his soldiers stopped firing the machine guns. So in one event, <laughs> I got some insights into Iran. One is that religious events are not necessarily dangerous, and the embassy may be out of touch <laughs> with what's happening at the ground level. So we'll listen to them, but we'll listen to our Mosaddeqs that we happen to know as simple shopkeepers, as they had a considerable amount of more wisdom and could tell us much more about what we witnessed. The second person I want to tell you about is also a very interesting and humble person. Uh, he was a... Um, a soldier. He was actually an American soldier with American uh, Signal Corps, a Spec 4, he was called. That was his rank. And he and his friends, there were a band of them, about 15 of them, who had their own house in Mashhad with a swimming pool, which came in handy. As an American, when I would ask him, you know, could I use your swimming pool? I said, oh, yeah, come on in. And we'll give you a Budweiser and a peanut butter sandwich and you can watch these old movies. <laughs> uh, so I got a little bit of, of America uh, on, the, on the side. But it turned out it was, a, it was a good relationship because this guy who was spec four liked to visit villages. And I asked him, why do you like to visit villages? It could be dangerous. You're not wearing a uniform, are you? He said, no, no, we don't wear uniforms. He was plain's clothes. I said, okay, well, let's go. And we'll visit a village. And I'll use my Persian and you provide me with some transportation. You'll get to, get to the villages. And so we began a tradition of going to the distant villages all around Tehran. Now this guy was always driving his Jeep because he was a somewhat of an errand person. So he would go down through these narrow streets into the bazaar to purchase things. 
Unfortunately, one late day, it was dusk, he was going down one of these uh, couches, they're called alleyways, and he came around a corner and he struck an elderly woman. She died within 24 hours. He was out of Iran in less than 24 hours, just in case the Iranians want to put him on trial. The SOFA agreement was in operation. I saw it happen with an actual soldier. So I miss my friend from that point on. But I said to myself, you know, that's a cozier relationship, and no wonder the Iranians are ticked off. Americans are protected better than their own people. So these lessons were all within the first six months of being in Iran. My last lesson came because of sickness that I had developed when I was in Meshed, not due to the food, which was excellent. My best uh, cure was a breakfast ash made of rice and yogurt, and it became my breakfast, and I could eat that very easily, but I couldn't hold anything else down, it seemed. So eventually I was going to be moved out of Meshed, and I ended up in the Kurdish town of Mahabad, in the northeastern, northwestern corner of Iran, in Azerbaijan, western Azerbaijan. Mahabad was not his real name, I was told, when I first got there. I said, that's, that's interesting. I'm sure it's M-A-H-A-B-A-D, Mahabad, the place of the fever. Doesn't make a lot of sense, as you people aren't feverish, are you? And they said, no, we're not. That was imposed on us. This place, Tom, please call it Savush Bulak. That is the cool spring, which is partly Kurdish, partly Turkish. Well, the person that I was being introduced to when I finally left, Iran, left Mashhad after six months, I was sent to Mahabad, and the very first person I met was a young banker. Now, I thought this guy was a fairly respectable person. He was, very open and friendly. He said, Tom, I want to tell you something right away. We only speak two languages here, and one of them, neither of them are Persian. I had worked so hard through preschool training and through special tutors in Meshed to learn Persian, spoken Persian. Now I'm being told, what language then should I speak, I said. Oh, your English is okay, he said, but we speak Kurdish. So I began to learn Kurdish. But how did I learn Kurdish without a book? So I asked the Peace Corps officers and the director at the time in Tehran, please send me a Kurdish grammar, and I'll sit down with a tutor and we'll do the Kurdish study. They said, we can't do that. Tehran informed me, the Peace Corps had told me, that Kurdish is not officially recognized as a language. It's a dialect. And um, just listen hard, and maybe you can learn it just by listening, because you've already studied Persian. I said, sorry, <laughs> send someone from Tehran who speaks, speaks only Persian, and I'll bet they can't understand 90% of the conversation in the street. I'll bet. Kurdish is a language, of course, like Iran. It's an Iranian language, like Persian. It's a different language. It's not a dialect. Once more, the embassy was off base. Why follow what is a nationalist position from the Iranian government? That all people, whether they like it or not, are going to be Persians. And what happens to minorities? They get very angry. So the second thing he told me, the same banker, and it wasn't in the same day, it was nearly the same day, he said, Tom, I have a question for you. And I said to uh, Sadiq, I said, what is it, Sadiq? Uh, what's your question? He said, I want to know why the CIA killed JFK. <laughs> I said, I have no idea. And why in the world would you think about that? Oh, that's an important event. It shows some of the character of the United States and how people can speak out and others people can't. We don't know why JFK was shot, I said. But I'm sure we'll find out. Well, we still haven't found out. So in fact, Within a, a brief six to eight months in, as a Peace Corps volunteer, 
I learned that Iranian people have amazing depth, are aware of international events, and carry deep, deep anger about forcing language on them, or a court system which they don't benefit at all. The famous, uh, uh, the famous court system that went back to the 19th century, and the capitulations, as they're called, as mentioned by John. They're hated, very much hated, by any nationalist from Morocco to Indonesia. No one is outside of the, of, the, of the colonial period in that sense, and deep resentment exists already. Well, I said to my friend who was my, uh, Bob Abramson, who was my colleague, I said, Bob, do you realize what kind of task we have here? Uh, we're called ambassadors, but I don't think I want to be an ambassador. <laughs> they don't seem to know much. And why is it that we are so superficial with people? Uh, not to say any John comments accepted. on John. He's <laughs> a, former Peace Corps a former Peace Corps volunteer, so he's among you know, uh, the anointed. Um, but Peace Corps volunteers who are here know exactly what I'm talking about. We were stunned by the superficiality of our official positions. Reading Time magazine while riding in a rickety bus with goats and chickens under my feet was really amazing experience. Surrealistic. At Iran was going, going, doing blazing good things that the Shah is bringing Iran reluctantly into the 20th century. I said, oh, I don't think that's really what's happening here. Uh, as I bump along in a little gravel road and suddenly it's paved, and I found out it's paved at this stage because that helps the officials get from one place to the other. It's a place of favoritism being practiced. And the United States is coming down on the side of the people who are in power and oppressing and delaying progress, not dragging anybody into the 20th century. So we began to see reality in multiple ways and think outside the box. And we still do that, some of us to this very day. So I'm grateful to Iranians for the lessons learned. And I try to hopefully talking about Iran all the time to peoples and groups in this country, to our fellow Americans, to say that little things such as the Iran deal is not a deal. You make a deal with the car salesman. You make a deal with a game show host. It's a diplomatic activity. We call it an accord. It is a UN accord that revolves seven nations. We should respect it by our terminology. Words mean things. It just shows again, when everybody talks about an Iran deal, they really don't know, we don't know what's going on. Well, I hope we change. Thank you. back to my assigned position here. Actually, you two need to change places. No, you can sit. That's fine. fine. Um, can I just say one thing, though, before you speak, Trita? I, I remember when I started going to Iran 20 years ago, and I was writing about a society of incredible complexity and sophistication for a newspaper, USA Today, that, let's face it, was not at that time terribly sophisticated. Uh, and it used to drive me crazy that they would always put pictures of women in black chadars with, and pictures of, of Ayatollah Khomeini with my stories. Finally, it drove me so crazy that I started taking my own pictures uh, just so that we could sort of begin to bring the stories into reality, into the reality of Iran even 20 years ago. So it's, it's an uphill battle to educate Americans uh, about this society. Um, 
Trita? Thank you so much. Um, on that note, uh, Barbara, I, I want to give you and the Atlantic Council credit because, actually, I'm preferring to sit, sit down. Uh, to give credit because what the Atlantic Council is doing with this Iran initiative is precisely provide that education and that nuance that is so sorely lacking here in Washington, D.C. In fact, I think it's the only think tank. People can't hear you. I think that may be because, okay, I'll speak out louder. Sorry about that. Please, um, praise me again. Yes. <laughs> I want to really give credit to the Atlantic Council. Louder. <laughs> 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 the only think tank that is taking on these issues and trying to really provide the nuance that Iran deserves and needs and that the American public needs in order to understand this complexity. Now, I want to first off say that I really envy all of you in the audience because you have the great pleasure to be able to sit here and listen to Farzane and listen to John and, and listen to Tom and their fantastic stories. Uh, and I've been in your position in many occasions and been able to sit and benefit from their tremendous wisdom. I've now also had a very cruel experience, at least twice now, to be on the same panel with them and making sure that there's absolutely nothing I can say, no analysis I can provide, that you would remember 24 hours after this panel compared to the tremendously valuable thing that they have said. But let me just, uh, I'm just going to make a couple of points looking forward uh, to see how, what the chances are to truly be able to prove this proposition that there are ties that bind. If we first look at what the diaspora can do, the Iranian-American community, hand in hand with uh, the 1,500 or so people who have been, um, had the privilege of being able to serve in Iran during the Peace Corps, I think a couple of uh, views or a couple of uh, uncontested conclusions about the Iranian-American community were proven quite false just in the last two and a half years. Mm. One was that the Iranian-American community is very similar to that of the Cuban-American community or other communities that have come here because they had a genuine and a legitimate political problem uh, in the country of their birth. And as a result, their views were to have a very hawkish and a very uh, aggressive U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis that country and, and for some form of an externally sponsored regime change. That was a view that was largely held because one of the first groups that arrived in Iran, uh, in the United States from Iran, had the privilege of setting the tone, even though they belonged to a very small minority. And that minority and the, the size of that minority became quite clear when the Iranian-American community played a very big role as a very um, strong advocate of diplomacy and of the uh, Iran deal, I'm sorry, uh, I'm still calling it that. JCPOA. JCPOA. <laughs> in order to make sure that this was not an effort to support the government or support what was happening, but because of the very strong desire to prove that the problems that exist between the two countries can be resolved within a framework of peaceful diplomacy. That was a crazy proposition up until Barack Obama became president. But the Iranian-American community, one of the strongest forces in support of that deal, uh, they didn't have the chance to make that voice heard up until there actually was a real diplomatic effort and a real diplomatic process that they could step up and, and show their support for. Today, however, I would say that a lot of Iranian-Americans are a bit disappointed because they saw this deal as being important not only to resolve this problem, to make sure that there's no nuclear weapon in Iran and there's no war with Iran, but also because it was necessary in order to be able to open Iran up and be able to play the role of a bridge between the two countries and between the two peoples. 
There was so much excitement that even before the deal was struck, there were uh, conferences in Iran, in Europe, being organized. Uh, Ibridges, TEDx Kish, others, uh, to be able to start laying the groundwork for the people-to-people -people exchanges and the connectivity uh, that was desired. And these were almost all exclusively driven, organized, funded by Iranian Americans. Perhaps their enthusiasm was too strong and came too early because it caused a reaction inside of Iran by those who opposed the deal precisely because they feared this opening. And they started a massive campaign targeting the individuals who were behind and who were the leading forces behind these uh, conferences who only wanted to do this because they wanted to build bridges, but now they were being accused of being spies and, and seeking influence in Iran, etc. And now we've reached a point in which those num the number of those conferences have reached uh, are in single digits, uh, if even that, and it's become very difficult. And those who have been involved in bridge building don't feel that they have the security to be able to engage in bridge building because of what hardline elements inside of Iran have done. Uh, and this has caused a significant chill. Uh, and it reminds us that any effort in this regard is going to need a tremendous, tremendous amount of patience. This was not going to be a quick victory. Uh, the process of opening Iran up necessitates not only uh, patience, but also an understanding of the nuances of Iran. Uh, because in retrospect, I have to admit, this should have been a little bit more easily predicted uh, than we did predict. We were wrong. That level of nuance then brings me to the second point I would like to make, which is that I am very worried. We just ended our um, three-day conference, as was mentioned earlier on, and we had the privilege of having both people from the White House as well as people representing the Hillary uh, Clinton campaign. For some strange reason, the people in the Trump campaign did not res respond to our invitations. Um, but nevertheless, I, I don't know many of the people in the audience were there as well, but I left with the feeling that the degree of understanding of nuance, the degree of appreciating nuance that currently exists in this White House is not likely to be repeated anytime soon, regardless of who wins. Mm -hmm. The way the President understood this issue and really internalized it is continuing to surprise me, mindful of the fact that this, his approach to this and the, the path that he took was not a path that had been paved by endless amounts of uh, think tank reports that showed the way. There were a few, and Barbara was involved in some of them. But there wasn't this intellectual preparation for this coming mm. out of the Washington, D.C. think tank. This <laughs> is something that truly came from the White House itself and the people inside there uh, working this out, and not too dissimilar from what happened with some other countries that the president pursued. What also came through of this is that, unlike the proposition that tends to be the the standard one in Washington is that if there is a potential opening, you take a very, 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 very small, imperceptible step in that direction, and then you expect a massive step from the other side in order for you to have the political will to continue on your path. That is not what the administration did. It was much more similar to what the Kissinger administration did with China. They made a decision. This lies in our strategic interest to resolve this issue. And then we have to come up with the steps to make that work, rather than doing it the other way around. Testing various things and then to see if that works. It's a very big difference on how you do this. They decided that this was necessary and then you find out what makes it work. 
rather than just testing small steps and hoping that they will go. That's why the persistence, the political will that the administration showed to be able to get to this point is truly remarkable because you have to be willing to take on some of the strongest political forces mm -hmm. in this country, including one or two prime ministers and a king or two uh, in the region. This is, I think in retrospect, we're gonna truly uh, better understand what a tremendous step that was. And as we do so, we're also gonna come to the realization that it's gonna necessitate an equally strong dedication and determination to be able to ensure that this path does not end, that this path continues, because we have at best ended a nuclear pro uh, uh, problem. We have not transformed the relationship. Hmm. Uh, and this, I, I don't wanna end this on a negative or, or a pessimistic tone, but it does make me a bit concerned because I think what is gonna have to happen, and this is a challenge to those who wish to see this path go forward, particularly those in the Peace Corps uh, who can speak with tremendous authority on this issue as Americans, um, is that it's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure and advocacy and organizing to make sure that that level of political dedication and persistence emerges in the White House and in the State Department regardless of who wins in November. I'll stop there. Thank you, Chief. <laughs> <laughs> nice you have all exceeded my expectations uh, for, for brilliant comments. Uh, John, I always remember you talking about the US and Iran and saying that uh, if you don't know where you're going, any, any road will take you there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that was always one of his, his, uh, his lines about the US and Iran. But I think it's fair to say that Obama actually knew where he wanted to go mm -hmm. and found a road that could take us there. Um, so many thoughts, I mean, talking about sofas, you know, how many Americans understood why Prime Minister Maliki would not accept a sofa in Iraq? Mm -hmm. right, yeah, when you hear stories reason. about the reaction right, in right. Iran to that sofa in 1963-64, it begins to help you understand why other countries sometimes don't like to grant us these privileges. So I think they're just really, really rich presentations from, from all the speakers. Um, let me ask each of you perhaps to react to the other rather than a specific question, Farzani. Uh, I mean, we know that, that literature is incredibly important in Iran. We know that there is a vibrant women's movement that has been going on in that country for, for over a century. What more should Americans know and how can we support and encourage this kind of change without causing a backlash? Or, or do we simply have to, to have hands off? Um, I think that's one area that you absolutely don't need to have your hands off. It's very easy to have more works of translation. Um, mm. The year that 9-11 um, happened in this country, and I'm not sure about my statistics, but it's something less than 15 books altogether were published from the Middle East in this country. Uh, these are important. I'm not saying they're the only voice that we should listen to, but it's a voice that ought to be listened to. So that's why I really believe, other than, you know, Freud always talked about a talking cure. I think American diplomacy needs a listening cure. Uh, we, we need to listen to these uh, multi-layered, nuanced um, voices. 
that are not necessarily only about descent, but they're about the reality of life in Iran. Iran has changed. Yeah. I haven't been back for a few years, but the last time I went back, I really couldn't know the country that I was born in and raised in for 18, 19 years. Um, so I think what we can do is to encourage more, more, uh, more works of uh, translation. We can invite uh, writers from inside the country. And I genuinely believe, and of course, I have a bias. I recognize that, that Iranian women writers have been at the forefront mm. of a cutting edge, um, incredible revolution. You see in it how the society has changed, how family dynamics have changed. Iranian women have been discussing the fact that you cannot have democracy in the country if you don't have democracy at home. How better of a solution to the problems, and um, not only to the problems, but also to all the accomplishments. I mean, for the first time in Iranian history, we have as many women novelists in Iran than men novelists. There are more literary awards won by women than by men. I was at a conference. One of our foremost novelists, a man, a dear man, came to me and said, what do you think? if I adopt a woman's name. <laughs> I said, boy, life is. I said, dear, dear friend, it's not the name that does the trick. It's the point of view. It's the perspective. It's the reality that they bring to our attention. Okay, thank you. That's great. Um, I, I will point out our last event here was on uh, contemporary art in Iran. And uh, that is also an area where Men, yes, but also women are incredibly. I mean, if you know the works of, uh, of uh, Shireen Nishat, but many, many others. And uh, um, we had one of our panelists talking about the fact that on Fridays now, people go gallery hopping in Tehran, uh, partly to see the latest artworks, uh, but also to show off their new fashions. <laughs> and um, this is not the image of the Islamic Republic that is usually. Uh, usually uh, projected in, in the United States, certainly not in Washington. So you, you have to wrap your, your head around these things. John, I want to give you credit. You know, John was uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Iran f from 2010 to... Two 2009, 2010. To 2010, briefly. And one of the things that he did was help Obama craft these amazing Nowruz messages to the Iranian people. Now, not the specific one that, that quoted. Yes. Yeah. I, I wish I had done that one. I not wish I could one, take credit not, not for the, the 2011 one. Not but you had Hafez, you had uh, other poets, right. yes? Saadi. Saadi, right? Uh, and, and you and also. For the first time, we had a woman there. That's right. And, uh, and you also uh, explained to the White House how to phrase these things in such a way Simple things like using the actual name of the country, the Islamic Republic of Iran, talking about mutual respect. Uh, the George W. Bush administration somehow never caught that. 
in its communications with, with the people of Iran. And I think it made a big, big difference. Certainly, judging from my visits to the country, it was one of the reasons why Obama was looked upon so favorably. So put on your diplomat hat. What would be your suggestion to the next US government coming in? Well, one Hopefully, thing. Hopefully, sorry. Hope, well, I won't. You say should go it. ahead. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> no, I won't say it. I think it's quite obvious uh, what my preference would be. Right. But whoever it might be, yeah. um, what would be your suggestion in terms of how they speak uh, to Iran? Um, something that Trita uh, po pointed out, and I appreciate what he said, is don't give up. Um, this is going to, however it works, this is going to be hard. This is going to be hard. You know, 30, 37 years we've been bashing each other, uh, calling, each other calling each other names. They are the um, axis of evil. Uh, we, are world we are world arrogance and great, the great, great Satan. Satan. No. Things like this don't change, uh, uh, don't change easily. Um, and so uh, steps like the um, uh, nuclear agreement, nuclear, accor uh, 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 nuclear accord, um, whatever you think of them, I mean, you may agree with it, you may not, uh, but in a symbolic sense, it is a huge change mm. because it, it is a way of interacting that we have, it, that has not existed for, did not exist for 35 years. Right. Um, and one of the things that I found when I went back when I went back to the State Department, I found two things. First of all, um, our knowledge, the 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 core, the reservoir of knowledge, understanding, experience, as imperfect as it was, was gone. Good. Uh, my Persian teacher, Vita Burbur, is here. My first Persian. She was my first Persian teacher um, in 1964 at the University of Michigan. Now she was not. She was, she was not the one who suggested we assassinate the Shah. <laughs> she may remember who that was. She may remember who that was. But uh, uh, no, we, but we lost that. We lost that uh, core of in, uh, experience. And so when the department needed to, uh, you know, in, in 2009, when government said, hey, we, we don't, wait a minute, we've got to uh, we've got to do something differently. We need some people with this experience. They ended up um, opening up, they had to go and open up the gates of Jurassic Park. Uh, and they found this beast grazing sort of peacefully in the corner of the field. And they said, you know, that looks to me like an Iranosaurus. <laughs> oh, you're too modest. Um, but, you know, it. It really changing changing the way people thought about this problem and changing the way, even though you know, the president had made has made these wonderful things and had done all these um, all these things. It was really tough, and I'm not even talking about Iran. The reaction from the Iranians, which was very difficult as well, but even our own thing, our um, our own part, and what Trita has said, I think, is reflective of that. There are ref, you know, people react on reflex, mm -hmm. and it brings us in a certain way. That's right. um, so again, listening, patience, and, uh, uh, um, and persistence. You know? And when one door would shut, as it often did, you know, look for the little, look, look for the small door. The Hungarians, I think, have an expression like this. They talk about the kishkapu, the little door. 
Look mm -hmm. for the little gate. Always look for the little gate when you find this, uh, when you find it. And that's what we, and that would be my advice, that would be advice to the next, uh, um, the next administration. Um, if, you know, if the, if the Republican candidate wins, I don't know, you know, normally you can say, uh, Republican candidate, Democratic candidate, you can sort of draw it out. In this one, um, really, you, you almost can't. It gets very hard to predict. We're close on time, but I'm going to ask that we go over a little bit because I want to ask you, Tom, your advice. I know you've been you've been guiding tours to Iran. Your advice in terms of U.S.-Iran academic exchanges. Mm. They do exist. They're hard to do. Um, we we actually brought an Iranian documentary filmmaker here a couple of weeks ago to show a film on the Hamoun Basin. It took me six months to get the guy here. So yes, persistence and patience. But is there anything else in terms of the subject matter? I know the environment is good. Anything scientific is good. What else should we look for uh, for academic exchanges? Well, study abroad is one of the issues that you're touching on. And for uh, 17 years of my work, not only as an academic and historian at Villanova University, I was the director of international studies. And I set up. Five, 16 different programs for the university in various countries, including Latin America and in West, Eastern Europe, as well as in China. Mm -hmm. um, the ability, or the, the actual function and the management issues surrounding setting up exchange is relatively easy, given the history that has been, it's been done with many countries by the United States. Um, Fulbright, of course, does that and did that in Iran. There was a Fulbright scholar who was in Tabriz in 1958-59, who was an English teacher in a little college in Iowa, and he applied for a Fulbright, and he ended up in Tabriz. Uh, he had no Persian, no Azeri Turkish, no Kurdish, no Armenian, no Assyrian background. All those languages would have helped him. Yeah. Uh, he had English. Uh, well, what he came away with was a book called Persian Lambs, Persian Lions. Everyone should read that book because it's an excellent insight into a Peace Corps type experience mm -hmm. of how he began to overcome language issues. He attended, went to many of the students' homes. He was invited there by the families uh, as one of the high points. But he uh, was coming to grips with a, a, a person who was being celebrated in 1959, the famous Howard Baskerville. Oh, yes. And how many people in the United States could put their hand up and say they know Howard Baskerville? You cannot be in touch with Iran. That's not fair. <laughs> Howard Baskerville is a national hero. National hero. I can give you some examples of when I went with a group of six people to Iran who were curious during the hostage crisis of talking to the students at the embassy. And I was with them when they were talking to the students. I was with them when we were invited to a mosque uh, to give a presentation on the last night we, that we were in Tehran. And what's interesting is the very first question we were asked by the assembled uh, men and women in the balcony, we were sitting in front like a press corps. And a, a gentleman stood up about age 30, 35. He said, when, uh, when are we going to see another American Baskerville? Uh, it's resonated with anybody who knows the story of Baskerville. He's a young man who was a Princeton grad, spent two years in Tabriz, and died. Died for Iranians. And the Iranians know that. There were flowers on his grave every day when I went by in Tabriz, his, the hospital, the American hospital, where the American cemetery was placed. 
And I noticed that he was the only one getting fresh flowers, so I asked the Presbyterian doctor, Dr. Miller, an American, um, a, a medical missionary, who's putting these fresh flowers on Baskerville's grave? He said, we have no idea. Hmm. No idea. It would be nice if we knew who it was, or if such flowers were placed on the grave of Iranians who were buried in this country. I mean, it's, the issue is quid pro quo, and that's what exchange is about. How many Americans have read the Shah Nalme? The national poem. The national poem. It's the longest uh, couplet ever written, 20,000 couplets ever written. Now, the interesting thing is that that's a national, uh, how many know the national heroes in Iran? Those who were heroically during the, the Iranian constitutional movement, when a hundred women showed up in the Baharistan Square with cloaks over their uh, chadors on, if not coats, and they wanted to talk to the parliament. The parliament is about ready to vote, a critical vote. Should the American advisor be allowed to remain by the name of Morgan Schuster or not in Iran, because he was reforming Iran's economy. And the vote was coming up that day. They wanted to talk to the parliament. There's no way. A delegation, please. These aren't stupid men. They don't want 100 women coming in to their, to their assembly. Were they in for a surprise? They said, you have to take us all. Oh, OK. Shash Gorban. I mean, it's a Torah. So we'll... Tom, I'm going to have to, <laughs> yeah, to make put, a, short. put a lid, because we, we have almost no time, and there are a lot of people. I'm making a point. Make, come is, to the point. The point is very simple. They showed up, gave a presentation, said, don't vote on this. Don't reject Schuster. And if you don't, then they threw off their chadors <laughs> and showed them they're all carrying pistols and rifles. Oh We're prepared God. to kill you <laughs> because we believe our, liber our liberty is precious. That's a story we don't know about. You see, Iran's just a bunch of screaming people. No, we need to exchange People. And it's easily done with acad academic level. If universities in the United States, we engage in exchanges with the Iranian universities without the involvement of the other government, uh, with they have to have the permission, certainly the Iranian government, uh, it, would, it would foster an enormous groundswell of informed young people, both the faculty and students. And it can't, it's doable. It's doable because the, Iranian, the, the American Study Abroad Association handles something in the order of 150 to, 100, 100 to 250,000 American students overseas every year. It's easily done for credit. Okay. I wanted to call on you, Mina, just briefly to, to say a few words. There was a lady in the audience who had some personal reminiscences about this period, so please Thank you. Yourself. Um, my name is Mina Marafat, and I'm an architect, and I went to school. Uh, in this country, uh, but I started my education in an American school in Iran. And the story that I think is told by the uh, Peace Corps is a tiny piece of the puzzle. There is a nuance here, and thank you uh, to uh, Dr. Professor Milani, who, who mentioned literature. I want to e extend it to all of education. I think people don't realize the exchanges that did occur in the uh, 50s, 60s, mm. 70s, post-war era, and even before, between educators uh, in Americans and Iranians. My school was a missionary school in Iran, and I'm to this day grateful and, in fact, in touch with uh, a few of my teachers <coughs> from uh, elementary school and high school in that country. Facebook allowed me to find them. So there is a, a, a lot of history that is being 
uh, ignored and in some ways uh, lost without documentation. There are many, many people like me who have been exposed to uh, a side of America that brought us to this country that allowed us to assimilate without much problems. I think, and, and one of those chapters was written by architects. There was a time in the 1970s where there were more American architects in Iran than they were in Washington, D.C. And I assure you, I know, because I met a whole lot of them, from Moshe Safdie and Ian Pei and Jacqueline Robertson to uh, Frank Gehry really was looking for work there, too. But it is an interesting story. At that time, I would call Amer Iran the 51st state in America. No one in my, even my generation, remembers that. That's really sad. I think a history is being lost without documentation, and I'm very grateful to Barbara for opening up and trying to get this distinguished council and other academics that um, in Villanova, and I'm very grateful. I, as a student, I was invited there to give a lecture, and um, I remember talking about Iran as black and white and technicolor. So I think that there is a whole history, a nuanced history of Iran that needs to be told through Americans mm -hmm. who experienced Iran, mm -hmm. through Iranians who experienced America. One of the lasting legacies, and this is truly American, and I know it, is Ameri American influence in education in Iran. We have hundreds and hundreds of colleges. And guess what? They're modeled after American colleges. And Sharif University is MIT in Iran, mm -hmm. and there is a direct connection between them. And there are many, many others all across the art college in Esfahan. It's modeled after the American uh, colleges here. And Dick Arndt knows, others who really know the Iranian culture know. The Iranian-American Iranian society is the first place that I saw my Andy Warhol show at age nine or 10. I mean, that's something that people don't realize. Iran and America had a relationship that was through education and culture. It was the remnant of the Eisenhower, uh, you know, conquer the world through culture. And that American <laughs> culture is still there. You call it useless, but it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mina. Um, Faye, did you have a question? Yeah, OK. Uh, thank you, Barbara. This was one of the best programs you've had at Atlantic Council. And you know I do come to every single program we have you on do. Iran. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mrs. Milani, for such an eloquent presentation. You brought tears into my eye. Uh, but I have a question for Trita. Since you were in public policy, we just came back from New York uh, at the UN General Assembly with uh, Dr. Zarif. Uh, it was a very optimistic speech. And I think in his speech, he was still very angry at Americans that they always have used sanctions uh, as the only vehicle to bring countries who are not on the same line with them at the negotiating table. Now, in your uh, opinion, what are the other tools that the United States can use to bring countries who are not thinking the same way they do at the negotiating table? Thank you. Great question. <laughs> what do we got, Trita? Not much. <laughs> you have to keep one thing in mind. Part of the reason why sanctions have become so uh, proliferated is because Congress is the driving force behind this. And mm -hmm. Congress doesn't have any other tools except for cutting funding of something or imposing sanctions. Uh, and that's the main reason as to why in the last 30 <coughs> years you see sanctions being such a center of uh, policy on many different places. 
we're starting to see a bit of a backlash against this actually, because we've reached a point in which it's starting to truly backfire. I think even when it came to the Iran sanctions, the difficulty of undoing them has also shown the tremendous challenge with this tool. Because if in the future the United States is going to use the sanctions as a pressure uh, and incentive for a future country to uh, make a compromise is to make sure that those sanctions are lifted, well, then you need to make sure that the example of Iran is functioning. Because if the example of Iran is that even after you lift the sanctions, the, the habits and the fear of future sanctions remain in place, well, next time around, the promise of lifting sanctions is not going to carry much credibility or validity. It's okay. um, we asked uh, at our event, and, and you were there, um, I pointed out to Ben Rhodes that when he and the president went to Havana in Cuba, they did so explicitly because they wanted to make sure that the opening that they had created, that little door uh, that John mentioned, that it would be irreversible. Unfortunately, the president is not likely to go to Iran anytime soon. So what is left to make sure that this is irreversible? And interestingly enough, he said exchanges. He pointed out the tremendous importance of making sure that these people-to-people -people contacts are extended as much as possible in all different type of areas to make sure that we don't go back to the habits of mutual demonization that has characterized the U.S. and Iran for the last 35 years. Obviously, other steps could potentially be more effective faster, but they're not feasible at this point. But exchanges are, and if exchanges are successful, they have the ability to have the durability that nothing else has, because we would not be sitting in a room with people who spent time in Iran 40 years ago if it wasn't for the power and the durability of exchange. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I encourage everybody to stay afterward and speak to our incredible guests. Um, I, I have to agree with you, Faye. I think this is one of my favorite events as well. Thank you so much. You were just fantastic.